Let me ask you please to turn to Colossians in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want to begin, I want to read verses 1 through 17. Colossians in chapter 3. I'll give you a moment to find that and then we can pray together Then I'll read it. Colossians 3, please. Pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word. I pray that you would teach us well here. Uh, to do that, we confess that we need not only some brain power, not only do we need to think, but Father, we need some resources in our hearts that you would enable us by your spirit to receive this word, that you would overcome any obstacle that we may have, any resistance that we may have to it. And Father, that we would be humble before your word, to receive it, to believe it, to be empowered by it, to be filled with your spirit in such a way that we would walk consistently with this truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but... Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we have been working our way through this particular uh, book of the New Testament, uh, we realize, again, Paul has has set all of this up. He has a, a goal and a purpose in his ministry. Uh, it's the same goal and purpose we have for our own lives. He says that he desires, it's his job, to present everyone mature in Christ. It's our desire to grow up, to be mature in Christ. So it's very nice that he's going to help us with that. That's the reason he's been called uh, to mature us, to grow us up in Christ, if you will. That's our desire as well. He does it, he says, by warnings and teaching. Notice in chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so that's what he's been doing through the course of this letter, warning and teaching. Begins in chapter 1 by laying out, by teaching, by laying out what it means to be mature. You remember from chapter 1 and verse 9, he prays for them and he prays that we be filled, they be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, we come to know that spiritual wisdom and understanding and knowledge of God's will is to know Christ because it's in Christ that we find all the treasures of wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so to to really have a grasp, understanding of God's will, we must know Christ. And so really he's praying that they know Christ so that, he says, that we're able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's maturity. Walking, living it out in a manner which is worthy of the Lord, which is pleasing to him. Worthy of the Lord meaning consistent with who he is. He's the Lord. To walk consistent with that means that we submit to him, that we yield to him, that we depend upon him, that we seek after him because he's the Lord. 
uh, to live any other way than seeking him, depending upon him, thanking him, would be to live unworthy of who he really is. And we're to please him in every way. That He's worthy of that. He's worthy of our complete focus, dependence, lives upon him. And so Paul desires, therefore, to present us mature so that we can know Christ, walk worthy of him, live fully pleasing to him. So that takes us through chapter 1, really, because Paul's MO, Paul's, Paul's way of doing this, of proclaiming, is to saturate everything with Christ. So he speaks in chapter 1 of Jesus as being Lord of creation, being Lord of the church, so we're to submit to him, to yield to him, to live fully pleasing to him. And then in chapter 2, he starts warning them. And the warnings that he brings are against those who are not helpful at all in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You remember, he ends chapter 2 by saying all these things that these false teachers are providing are, are, are ineffective or no help at all in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Because the indulgence of the flesh is an enemy of our maturity. When Paul speaks of flesh, remember he doesn't speak of our skin and our bodies and all that so much. As he's speaking about that sin... And the sinful inclinations that continue to live in, continue to reside in, even those who are followers of Christ, even those who've confessed their sins, even though have repented of their sins, even those who've been filled with the Spirit, even those who've been justified in the sight of God, that is, declared righteous by Him, even those who are in process of being sanctified, still, this flesh exists, it, this sinful, these sinful inclinations reside in us. And so Paul says, we've got to stop those. So we're about, at least in part, in the course of our lives these days. These false teachers haven't given us anything that's going to be helpful for us to stop indulging the flesh. Oh, they've told us that we're to live in a certain measure of self-denial. We're not to do this, and we're not to do that, and we're to do this, and to do that. But he said those things won't really help. And he's given us very, they've given us very, uh, various rules to follow, but, but they won't help either. Because stopping the indulgence of the flesh is not simply a matter of observing some rules and denying and living in a certain measure of self-discipline, self-denial. Now I said simply because stopping the indulgence of the flesh does involve commandments of God, does involve something of self-denial. you remember the psalmist speak. We read in one of our responsive readings, either even this morning from one of the psalms, the psalmist writes that he loves the law of God. The law of God is helpful to him. He desires to follow it and to, 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 to follow the statutes of God. The law of God is good. It isn't something to be thrown out, but it's good. The commandments of God are pure and righteous and holy. Uh, they enlighten, revive the soul, Psalm 19 tells us. So they're good. In fact, even Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It isn't that he threw out all commandments. In fact, he says, my commandment is that you love one another. In fact, Paul in another place in Romans in chapter 13 uh, speaks of the commandments of God verse, like this in verse 8 of Romans 13. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now just because there is love doesn't mean there are no rules. Just because there's love doesn't mean there's no commandments. Any husband can tell you that even though there's love in marriage, there's also some rules that if you violate... (laughs) Well, there's always that thing called the couch, uh, you know, the sofa, because, uh, no, not in my case. <laughs> but, but, but the, because how do we understand what pleases another? How do we understand what pleases God? How do we understand what, 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 what makes him happy? Well, we see his commandments. Children, if you want to know what makes your parents happy, listen to what they tell you to do and not do. Those are the things that make them happy. If you want to express love to them, well, do that and don't do those other things. And they'll say, oh, they love me because they're expressing that because they found out what pleases me and they desire to do that. That's a sense of love to another. And it isn't a matter that we simply, that there's no self-denial. Jesus said, if you, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily 
and follow me. Now, when Jesus was talking about denying yourself, he wasn't just saying, well, don't eat fish, don't eat meat on Fridays, or don't, don't, uh, don't give up chocolate. <laughs> you would never say that. Uh, it wasn't his point. Don't deny those sort of things to you, just sort of to be this kind of self-denying, aesthetic person. But rather, he's saying, deny yourself to yourself. Deny that sinful self to yourself. Deny that. Because, you see, it's, it's more than just behavior that Jesus is after. It's more than just behavior that God is after. It's a matter of the heart. And rules don't necessarily, on their own, just sort of change the heart. They might give a direction, but they don't change the heart. You can obey these things and be unjoyful or angry when you do it or not really desiring to do it, but simply doing it out of some sense of self-interest. That's not it at all. That doesn't help at all. That doesn't, that's, not, that's not stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can discipline yourself in such a way to do particular things and not do particular other things. But that isn't necessarily godly or pleasing to God, working worthy of the Lord. It's a matter of the heart. So it isn't simply following commands. It isn't simply self-denial. So what is of help in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Paul goes on in Colossians in chapter 3 and he says, well, we begin in the same way that we end, with Christ. It's about seeking him. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Remember we've been saying in the last couple of weeks and I, I trust you're getting this. I trust I'm getting this even as I think about it every week and say it every week. There's a context for this. There's a context for holiness. If we miss the context of holiness and godliness, if we miss the context of stopping the indulgence of the flesh, then we'll miss everything. The, the context, first of all, of course, is, is we can say an experiential context. There must be something true of us that we've died and risen with Christ entered into what he's done by faith, that experiential context. That's what Paul says is, if, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. This is for those who are in him. This is for those who are joined with him. This is for those who believe in him, who trust in him. We often in the church use the little expression, seeker. We talk about seekers, and we know what we mean normally when we talk about seekers. We're talking about those who are showing some sort of spiritual interest, and, and it's a fine expression to use in that context. What else are we to say about people who give some sense of spiritual interest, interest in Christ? They're not believers yet, but, but they seem to be seeking to know that. But, but biblically speaking, the Bible knows of no such thing. The scripture tells us that no one seeks God, no, not one. It's only those who have begun with Christ. It's only those who have come to Christ. It's only those who trust in Christ. It's only those who have died with Christ and been raised with Christ who actually then really seek him. You know, when we first come to faith, it isn't over then. <laughs> you know, it's like, whew, done now. You know, it's all downhill. Uh, no, it begins then. You've just met him. You know a great deal about him. He's worked deeply in you. And we spend the rest of our lives seeking him to sort all that out. What does that mean? What has he done? What does it really mean to belong to him? And so we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things will be added, on to, added unto us. That seeking, you see, is, is for those who've come to know him. And now, if you've been raised with him, meaning that you've died with him, that is when he died, you died, when he rose, you rose, when he died, the penalty for your sin was taken, when he rose, now newness of life. When all that happened, when you know that, when you believe that, when you trust in that, when that's your life, now seek him. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, meaning when you seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, you're seeking the one who is the Lord and the things from him. And you're recognizing he's the Lord. He defines my life. He directs my life. And, and, and he's the one who will lead me into the richest delight of all. I'll trust in him. So it begins then, you see, of coming to faith, trusting in him. So there's this experiential context. There's this theological context. We can't start this until something has happened. Where having been joined together with Christ, that all that he's done is extended to us. So we know that the penalty for our sin is, is taken. And we know that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. If that isn't true, then we'll have no heart to continue. How could we continue if we think that 
its power hasn't been broken. How can we continue on if we think that we're still under sin's condemnation? So the apostle says there's this theological context. Understand that you're in Christ. You're joined together with him so that all that he did on the cross is now extended to you. Thus, there's not only this experiential context, there's not only this theological context, but there's also this gospel context that enables us to face, to, to, to face our sin and to fight our sin. To face it, because it's forgiven, so we can admit it. We can say, it's really true. I don't have to be defensive anymore before God. You know, the human beings, and I, this is very personal to me, <laughs> we're incredibly defensive about our sin. It's funny. Well, sad, in my case anyway. Might be funny in your case. But it, it's, it's funny in an odd kind of way. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, when we come to church, when we come together as believers, well, the one thing that we know about each other is that we're all sinners. We know that. Yet we're still defensive about that, and we really don't want anybody else to really think that <laughs> or to really know that about us. So if anything bad comes up about us, you know, we want to defend it right away. Uh, but God knows us so thoroughly that why are we defensive in his presence? And we still are. We just don't want to deal with it. But this gospel context is you can because it isn't condemned in him, it's forgiven in him. So we can come and that enables us then, as we've been saying for the last number of weeks, to fight it as well. Not only to face it, but to fight it because we know that Christ is for us because he died for us, he lives for us. Thus, we know that we can fight this because Christ is for us and it works in us a sense of gratitude to say he really does love us. Thus, why would I not please this one who has so loved me? who so loves us. So that's the context here, this experience, this theology, this gospel context. So we're doing all of this, not simply gritting our teeth, though it feels like that, and that's sort of the, perhaps what happens in our lives. But we come at all of this trusting in Christ, that he's at work in us. Last week we took this verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So that, that was last Sunday, at least in our exposition. It still goes on in our lives in terms of putting all that to death. This week I want to take up verse 8. Paul says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Notice. It begins, Paul does, with this sense of anger, which is more of an inner disposition. It's more of the, 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 what's going on on the inside. And that anger then leads to all kinds of outward expressions, whether it be wrath or malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, that can come out of this anger. He doesn't list everything that's the fruit of anger. He doesn't, doesn't list the strife that it can cause among us or the grudges that we can hold or the bitterness that might envelop us because of anger. But he says we're to put away these things. Anger being this sense, uh, dictionary.com uh, defines anger like this, a strong passion or emotion of displeasure or antagonism. A strong passion or emotion of displeasure or antagonism excited by a real or supposed injury or insult to oneself or others or by the intent to do such injury. So, so something's come against us or comes against another that we think is wrong and it makes us angry. It could be another person. could be a circumstance. could be as trite as... Somebody pulling out in front of us in traffic makes us angry. How dare they do that to me? Uh, didn't they know I was here? Because <laughs> um, we've never done that to anyone else. Um, did it the other day. I did it the other day, pulling out of a parking lot. I had Karen with me and thought, oh, God wouldn't take her now this way. Uh, anyway, uh, after all we've been through, I felt pretty safe at the moment. But uh, uh, to be that trite to something significant like sexual abuse, like real bodily harm, murder, someone stealing our identity and making our lives completely miserable in that sense, or abuse against someone we love, our children, our spouse. We can think of it globally in terms of the injustice in the world and wars and all of that. We can think of countries that we can't help the poor 
because the government's so corrupt that every time we try to help the poor in that country, the government bureaucrats gets all of that. It makes us angry. We get a sense of anger in the midst of all of that as well. So it's a strong passion or emotion, displeasure, antagonism, excited by a real or supposed injury, insult or insult to our selves or others uh, that we love with the intent to do so. That kind of anger. But we see that anger can lead to wrath. It's interesting. When the Bible translates these words anger and wrath, the word for anger is the Greek word that's translated as the wrath of God in verse 6. Whereas wrath, as it is in verse 8, is really a different word, different Greek word than what you normally use for the wrath of God. The NIV, I think, really does it more justice, if you will. It defines it as, or translates it as, rage. Anger, if we're not careful, can lead to rage. Outbursts. And then he said that can lead to malice, which is a desire that harm be done to another person. We're malicious. We want someone else to be hurt. That normally springs from anger. And we can see how that anger has, was either started out bad or gotten twisted. And then slander, that is, saying those things against other people that are harmful. Frankly, they may be true. But we have a desire to say them in such a way that it would hurt the other person. That's malicious. Slander is malicious. It's saying something true or untrue, but saying something about a person so that it will make them look bad. We cast aspersions on their lives. And then obscene talk, not so much cursing as we might think obscenity, but saying abu- but being abusive, saying things about another person um, that, that harm them, that put them in a bad light. And even lying. Lying can stem from a number of different motivations, but can also stem from anger. Sometimes we lose control when we're angry in such a way that we're actually going to lie, spin the facts in such a way that will harm another person, make us look good because we're angry in the midst of that situation. How many lies are told by people who are angry and angry people? And the question for us is, why is Paul so intent upon us putting away Anger. Why can't we hold on to it? Isn't there something called righteous anger? We'll come to that in a minute. But just notice how the scripture speaks of anger. Anger. I'll just notice a couple of passages. First in Proverbs and chapter 14, verse 29. We read this. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. What does that mean? It means when you're angry, you're way closer to being foolish than when you're level-headed. You're slow to anger. It's easier to see things. Once you get angry, once the emotion of anger enters in, even if it could be called a good kind of anger, even if it's anger against injustice towards another, we have to be very careful in that situation that we really do things, see things clearly because it's easy to miss. It's easy to get caught up in the emotion. It's easy to get caught up in that anger and and not, not see it clearly. Proverbs 29, in verse uh, 11, we read this. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. You can see it, you can feel it, you know this. Perhaps you've been that angry person, or you've been one affected by that anger. Someone comes in who is angry, it affects everyone in various kinds of ways, not usually good ways doesn't usually produce godliness in others, but it normally causes reactions, sinful reactions, against that anger. The author of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9, puts it like this. Say not... I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong passage. That's not the right one. Uh, let's skip Ecclesiastes. Let's go. That was a great passage, too, in Ecclesiastes. It must have been Ecclesiastes. I won't play that game. Um, Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll hit Jesus. He's usually more reliable anyway. That isn't true. It's all the Bible. More reliable than me. Matthew 5, verse 21. Jesus puts it like this. 
He says, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgments. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to, the ju- to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Then Jesus goes on and says, make sure you make friends quickly. But notice that Jesus ties this inner motivation of anger leading ultimately, possibly, to murder. And then he even moves that back and says, you know, this anger can move us to such insult that it's like murder, so much so that the the punishment is the guilt is the same, that of hell. He says, whoever says to his brother, you fool. Now, he wasn't just simply saying, Paul wasn't, that we realize that someone is being foolish. The Apostle Paul, on a couple of different occasions, speaks to Christians as foolish. Uh, And so it isn't simply that. But basically this word for fool means you're worthless. And because you're worthless, therefore you should die. Because you're worthless, therefore there's no reason for you to live. When you reach that point, which anger can move us to, to say, to think of someone that they're so worthless, then we can actually take their lives. There's no reason for them to live. In fact, it's justified for us to do that because we realize now they are worthless. Paul speaks of anger as part of the flesh, these sinful inclination. Galatians in chapter 5 verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, orgies and, these, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Paul writes this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now often we read that and we use it as a defense for our anger. We say, well, Paul doesn't say don't be angry. He says be angry and do not sin. And that's exactly right. He does say be angry and do not sin. And so the question is, how can we be angry and do not sin? Paul says, by not staying angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And by that he doesn't mean, well, if you get angry at like 6 a.m. in the summer, you have until 9.30 to deal with it. All right? Makes us, most of us want to move to the land of the eternal sun, you know. <laughs> Certain times in Alaska, you could be angry for 23 hours. Uh, that's not his point at all. It's just an idiom. It says, deal with it quickly. Deal with it quickly. Why? Because if you don't, it will end up badly for everybody. You know, there's no passage of scripture that says love and do not sin. <laughs> the reason being, when we're really loving, we're pretty far away from sin. But there is this verse that says, be angry and do not sin. Because when we're angry, even if it's an acceptable anger, I suppose, we're closer to sin than we really want to be. And so you need to deal with it. You need to get this anger out and finish it off. And then he goes on, verse 31. Therefore let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with, with all malice. Be kind, therefore, to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Paul writes later to his son in the faith, Timothy, as he's talking to Timothy about about worship. And he says to Timothy, uh, I desire, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling without anger or quarreling with each other. In other words, in order for us to really pray, we can't do it if we're angry with each other. Why? Because that produces folly. Anger produces folly. Pray for somebody you're really angry about, angry with. (laughs) It's not pretty. James chapter 1, last one. James chapter 1, James puts it like this, verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires why? because when we're angry we 
quickly, easily move into sin. And that doesn't produce righteousness. It actually has the opposite effect of producing unrighteousness. But we might say, isn't there a righteous anger? Isn't there this holy anger? And, and, and in one sense, I would say yes. I mean, there are certainly things about which we can be angry um, because they're really wrong things. Repentance helps us in this particular place. As we repent of our sins, we can say, even if I did that or even if that was true of me, it would still be wrong and we can still feel a certain sense of emotion. But still, I would say that we must be careful with that kind of righteous anger because, first of all, in order to carry it, we must be righteous. See, God can carry righteous anger because no one can ever say to God, yeah, easy for you to say, or how can you say that given what you've done? But we all must realize as human beings that whatever makes us angry is in us. And you would say, well, Hitler's not in me. Really, probably you haven't done that or what Stalin did or Bin Laden or any of those things. But hatred is. It's in us. We know that. And there's never a situation where we can be ultimately angry with another that we can't really see ourselves in the midst of that. The more I read of sin in the world, the more I see myself. Oftentimes if I'm in a situation or with someone reading something about a particular sin that's gone on and on and on and, and reached the magnitude that no one would ever want to see it or reached the magnitude that even in my own life I haven't seen it reach, I can still see myself in that and I can say, this is, that's me here if it went there. I, I can play connect the dots. I may not have gotten there, but I can play connect the dots. And that's what causes this righteous anger to be somewhat less than righteous in us ultimately. So we have to be careful with that. Even in the context of what might be called righteous anger, still the apostle says, get rid of it as quickly as you possibly can. Because if you don't, it's not going to be pretty. If you don't, it's really going to lead to something bad. If you hold on to it, then you're likely to move to wrath. Someday there'll be an outburst of this anger, maliciousness. Someday you'll have this heart's desire for someone to be really harmed and hurt rather than receive the mercy and compassion of God and the grace of God. You'll be there and you'll have no compassion, no mercy, no kindness in you at all for that person. You'll want them hurt to even to the point where you might escalate that hurt in such a way or bring it along more quickly by slandering them, by telling other people about that so they can gang up on them as well and so they can move against them even to the point of being obscene and coarse in the way that you describe that even to the point of lying. So all of that can take place. You've got to deal with that anger right away. The question is, how do we do that? How do we put it away? Well, you can do what I did this week and go on all kinds of sites on the Internet and, and find all kinds of anger management classes and courses. And, and there's some wisdom in, in those kinds of things. But let me walk this through very quickly in a biblical way. First this, to realize that God is sovereign over every circumstance and situation. To seek the Lord where he is seated at the right hand of God. To know that this Lord Jesus rules and reigns. And again, I can't explain it. I can only proclaim it. I don't know how he does what he does, how he organizes all of the universe, how he moves in each different person as we make decisions and all of that. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't understand why God allows some things and prohibits other things and keeps some things from happening and allows other things that, that you know, I, I want to say that's way beyond me, but I don't trust anybody who doesn't think it's way beyond them to describe that. But I do know it's true. I do know that he is sovereign over all things that ultimately no one can ever do anything to me, whether it's lie, whether it's abuse me, whether it disappoint me. No one can ever do anything to me uh, apart from God allowing that to take place towards me. So I first process this in that way. There is one who is the Lord over all these things, whether it be a person or whether it be a particular circumstance. And every situation, therefore, enables me to take a deep breath and say, God is God. He knows this is happening. He knows exactly what's taking place here. He knows 
how uncomfortable it is for me, how inconvenient it is for me, how painful it is for me, how disappointing it is for me, what this is doing for me. And then it allows me then to check back in my own heart because I realize that most of the time that I'm anger, angry could not be at all placed in any kind of situation called righteous anger. It's almost always aimed, uh, it's almost always the result of someone violating my space, <laughs> violating my sovereignty, violating my life. It's inconvenient, it's painful, it's disappointing to me. How could you do that to me? And it makes me angry. That's, you feel it at that moment. And that's when I have to bow to the sovereign God and to trust him. I think often of Joseph in the Old Testament. He's a great character, someone for us to meditate on a great deal. He was unwise in his early days. He had a dream about his father and his brothers bowing down to him, and he was stupid enough to tell them about it. And it upset his brothers, as you might imagine. But to some degree, they got a little hyperactive about that because they were going to kill him, but thought it better, ultimately, to just simply sell him into slavery. Now, that would probably make you angry if you're Joseph, even though you had been a little stupid. It seems to me there's a better solution to all of this than selling me into slavery. Then Joseph, if you think about his own life, gets involved uh, in leadership because of this man Potiphar, this, this official. And then he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of, of trying to be sexually aggressive, sexually immoral with her. And then Potiphar sides with his wife, sends Joseph to prison, and he stays in prison for a great deal of time. He meets a couple of people who, are, uh, who work for the uh, official, the ruler, the pharaoh, uh, the failure's butler and baker, basically. And they have dreams. He interprets these dreams, Joseph does, for them. They're blessed and released from prison. And Joseph said, all I ask of you is when you get out, when you tell somebody about me, I really shouldn't be here. Then there's this amazing sentence in Genesis that simply says, and Joseph remained in prison for two years. Now, you'd sort of gloss over that one until you add up two years in prison, longer, unjustly, in two senses. One, because of Potiphar's wife. The second, because these people really should be helping you, and they're obviously not. Finally, providence of God. The king has a dream. Then it's remembered Joseph's good at that, so he's let out and all seems well, but then he's reunited in a wonderful way with his brothers. Oh. But he's not angry. Why is he not angry? Because he says, this didn't happen because of what you did. This happened because God wanted me here. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. I've been trusting him. That's what keeps me from being angry. You see, just because we aren't to be angry doesn't mean we can't deal with sin, ours or other people's. Doesn't mean we can't hold people accountable. Doesn't mean we can't discipline our children. Doesn't mean that we can't fire somebody who works for us. Doesn't mean that we can't uh, hold others accountable for their word and so forth and so on. What it means is that we do all of that without anger. Because you see, once we get caught up in anger, anger, then it causes us to be less wise less understanding, more prone to folly, more prone to sin. So somehow we have to get rid of it in order to deal with it, whether it's as small as our child disobeying us in minor ways to significant things. And how do we do that? Well, we focus upon God. He's sovereign. He allowed this to happen. He ordained this to happen. Thus, I can trust him and now get on with it. I know, ultimately speaking, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how inconvenient this situation is, that God will bring good. He's promised that. I don't know what that is. I don't feel it at the moment. But then the question is, what if my anger's against God? I mean, he's sovereign. So it's one thing to go, okay, God is sovereign. I won't hold it against you, but God is sovereign. Why did he do this to me? Well, anytime I get this sort of sticky questions, I quote people. Uh, Jerry Bridges, our friend, wrote a very helpful book called Respectable Sins. Not that any sins are respectable. Last time he was here, he talked about how he arrived at that title, but sins that we sort of get into as Christians and let each other do them, and they become respectable after an hour. After a while, he says, I've encountered a number of Christians who are angry at God for some reason. Some think, some of them think that God has let them down in some way. Others feel that God is actually against them. 
I sit here now looking at a letter in which the writer says, I have felt so many times that he slapped me in the face when I was really depending upon him. This person freely admitted to being angry at God because she had, not, she had concluded that God was actually against her. What are we to say to people who are desperately hurting and feel that God has let them down or is even against them? Is it okay to be angry toward God? Most pop psychology would answer yes. Just venture feelings towards God. I've even read the statement, it's okay to be angry at God. He's a big boy. He can handle it. In my judgment, Jerry's judgment, that is sheer blasphemy. Let me make a statement loud and clear. It's never okay to be angry at God. Anger is a moral judgment, and in the case of God, it accuses him of wrongdoing. It accuses God of sinning against us by neglecting us or in some way treating us unfairly. It's also often a response to our thinking that God owes us a better deal in life than we're getting. As a result, we put God in the dock of our own courtroom. I think of a man who, as his mother was dying of cancer, said, after all she's done for God, this is the thanks she gets. Never mind that Jesus suffered untold agony to pay for her sins so she would not spend eternity in hell. This man thought that God owed her a better life on earth. I acknowledge that believers can and do have momentary flashes of anger at God. I've experienced this myself. But we should quickly recognize those occurrences as the sins they are and repent of them. How then can we deal with our temptation to be angry at God? Must we just stuff our feelings and live in some degree of alienation from God? No, that's not the biblical solution. The answer lies, first of all, as I said before, you can go back and read chapter 8 where he said it before, in a well-grounded trust in the wisdom and sovereignty and love of God. Second, we should bring our confusion and perplexity to God in a humble, trusting way. We can pray somewhat in the following fashion. God, I know that you love me, and I also know that your ways are often beyond my understanding. I admit I'm confused at this time because I don't see the evidence of your love towards me. Help me by the power of your spirit to trust you and not give in to the temptation to be angry at you. It's never God's fault. We're not to be angry at him. We're to trust his sovereignty in every circumstance and situation, however disappointing, however painful, however light, however heavy it might be. And then you see, we recognize this, that he's been merciful to us, that we've received his mercy because we've sinned grievously against him. It's easy for us to see the sins of other people against us, and we think they're huge, and and, and then we need to realize that our sins against him have been huger. You remember the parable that Jesus told. Peter wondered how often he should forgive. Jesus told a story. He said there was a man who was owed a good bit by another man. If you do the math in that particular passage in Matthew chapter 18, you find that this man was owed by another about a third of a year's salary, let's say $15,000. Not insignificant. And so he went and he harangued him for this money. And what was so offensive of all of that is that this man, who was owed $15,000, had previously gone to one who was his creditor, and he had owed him $6 billion and was forgiven six billion. And you go, wow, he was forgiven six billion. Then he went out and found someone who owed him $15,000 and wouldn't forgive. That's offensive to us. That's who we are. We're the six billion dollar debtor when it comes to God. Whatever anybody else has done to us is 15,000 at worst. How can we with a clear conscience remain angry that doesn't mean we can't correct. That doesn't mean we can't hold accountable. That doesn't mean we can't discipline. That can't. But it means we don't do it in anger. We put that aside so that we can be compassionate, kind, gentle, patient, forgiving. And all of that by way of this example of Jesus. Here's how the Apostle Peter puts it. He says... For to you, this uh, for to this 
You've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, therefore neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How did Jesus not get angry at the cross? He was unjustly accused. He was unjustly beaten. He was unjustly tried. Um, All the charges against him were wrong, trumped up. Nothing was true. And yet they came against him. And in that moment, we know that Jesus kept his mouth shut. How could he do that? Why would he not defend himself so? And and the answer is because he trusted his father. Because he knew the promises of his father. He knew that good was going to come. He knew that he could go to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He could despise its shame. He could endure its pain. Why? Because his father was faithful. And he could trust him. Because his father always judged justly. And that's what we're to do every situation to put aside the anger why because we can trust God so Jesus was able to look out from the cross and say father forgive them the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread after giving thanks he gave it to his disciples he said this is my body which is given for you in the same way the scripture tells us that he took the cup that was there and again after giving thanks He gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What do we proclaim? We proclaim that we can trust our heavenly father in every circumstance, in every situation. We can trust him because look at what he's done. Christ is for us. He died that the penalty of sin is taken. He died so that the power of sin can be gone. A day will come when the presence of sin will be no more. Right now, we're in the midst of circumstances which try and tempt, but we're to to stop the indulgence of the flesh. How? By trusting Christ, seeking him, and by depending upon him and viewing everything in life through his sovereign love, grace, power, even down to those circumstances, even down to those people who make us angry. Put that aside. How? God's at work. God is sovereign. God is trustworthy. God will bring good. He's been merciful to me. How can I not be merciful to another? I can be free of that. Anger. So then I can see it clearly. So then I can act in such a way that's right, that's loving, that's kind, that's gracious, that's patient, that's forgiving, that's best for the others, for me, for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I think of What makes me angry? I pray that you would forgive me because those things that make me angry are almost always things that revolve around me, that violate my sense of sovereignty and entitlement. Forgive me. I pray that you would enable me, enable us to trust you to know that you see everything rightly, that you judge everything rightly, that you rule over everything wisely, powerfully, lovingly. You would enable us, therefore, to put away anger because we see life through you. You would enable us then not to be people of wrath who burst out in anger or malicious people who desire other people to be harmed. Rather, may we desire that even our enemies be blessed. Ultimately, by way of Christ. 
that we wouldn't slander another because we're angry with them, that we wouldn't speak ill of them and coarsely because we're angry at them. We wouldn't lie about them, spin life in such a way to make them look bad because we're angry at them. Free us, God, to forgive. Free us, God, to love. Even now, Father, as we come to this table, we're seeking Christ, our eyes, minds, even taste buds are upon him. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet with us in this table, at this table. Free us, please, from that which is ungodly. Free us, please, that which pertains to anger. And may we live in such a way that's worthy of you, Jesus, fully pleasing to you. Thus I pray you'd set apart this bread and this juice in such a way, Father, that we would fellowship in the very presence of our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy who believe and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and all those who desire to live a life that's worthy of him, that's pleasing to him, and all this by the power of his spirit. If that's true for you, let me invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. As you do, remind yourself that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Thus, the penalty has been taken. The power has been broken. And you may walk in newness of life, putting away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying. Please come. Now please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.